Please be seated. In the notices, Martin said, if you're bored later in the service, uh, then play for the children. So let's say a prayer that you won't be bored during the sermon. Let's pray. Lord, we gather here as crowds gathered before John the Baptist. We long to repent, to be cleansed, to be restored. We long to hear the voice of the one who is to come. And we wait for him with joyful expectation. So speak through my reflections, I pray, that we might all discern your word to us in these days. Amen. Well, last week, our superintendent gave us some personal testimony, how when he was in hospital years ago, a broken clock had a profound impact on him. I hope I've got this right. He noticed the clock displaying the incorrect date and time, and it just happened to be 8.43 on the 24th of May, which was the same time and date as John Wesley's heartwarming experience in Aldersgate Street. Is that right? Good. And at that moment, the experience spoke to Martin personally that he received an assurance that he needed at that time from God. Well, this morning, I'd like us to try and recall when somebody rather than something has had a profound and unexpected impact upon us. Just think of somebody perhaps who brought God's word to you, or the way God spoke to you through an unexpected, surprising person. And I wonder what was different about that person, unusual or unexpected. Well, whilst on sabbatical, I enjoyed reading a lot of books in a relatively short period of time, including authors that I'd never read before, some of whom were recommended in some of the books that I was reading. One writer, Brennan Manning, was completely new to me. And if someone had described him to me beforehand, I'm not sure I would have necessarily rushed to pick up the book. Brennan had a very tough childhood. He served in the Marines throughout his life. Throughout his life, he was a recovering alcoholic. Ashamedly, he's claimed to have broken at some time all the commandments. He became a Franciscan priest, and eventually he had to leave the priesthood in order to marry, but that marriage, sadly, after many years, broke down and he became divorced. And I could go on talking about his life, and you think, oh, that's a strange person to bring God's word to you. Hardly a saint, or was he? This vagabond evangelist's writing had a profound effect on me. His life is a bundle of paradoxes, yet unexpectedly, this brutally honest, tender, disturbing writer was prophetic for me. Speaking of God's radical love and grace, he challenged me deeply and inspired me to accept who I am and to abide in God's unconditional love and exercise what he calls ruthless trust. The experience was unexpected for me as I read those books. It was uncomfortable, 
but it's led me to a deeper relationship with my Lord and my God. So today, I'd like us to think about John the Baptist or John the Witness on this second Sunday of Advent, Bible Sunday. And I'd like us to have a sweep of his life, Tony Miles' quick whiz through his uh, life, and I'd like you to have two words in the back of your minds. These are words that came to me as I was pondering John the Baptist, and they are the words unexpected and uncomfortable. As it's Bible Sunday, let's start with some statistics. An unexpected statistic, if you like, to kick off with. In the New Testament, there are 91 references to John that we call the Baptist. 23 in Luke, 16 in Mark, 24 in, sorry, 23 in Matthew, 16 in Mark, 24 in Luke, 19 in John, 9 in Acts. It does add up, but surprisingly, no mention in the letters. Uh, Paul particularly has less concern for history. He's much more looking to the salvation plan in Christ. We can also find a lot about the baptizer elsewhere. For example, in the Apocrypha, the Gospels of Thomas and James tell us something about him. The writings of the Jewish historian and Roman sympathizer Titus Flavius Josephus, who I'm going to mention later. Also, unexpectedly, we can find out about John the Baptist from the Quran. John the Baptist was an unlikely but significant biblical character and character in history. And he wasn't what you'd expect. A few things about him. We know that he was the long-awaited son of Elizabeth and Zechariah, a very respected, God-fearing couple of the priestly temple class. They were old, and despite their prayers, they couldn't have, had, couldn't have children. For years, they'd been longing for children. They would have been the talk of the town. But the angel Gabriel appears to Zechariah and tells him that Elizabeth would have a son who would be full of the Holy Spirit even before he was born, who'd make the people ready for the Lord's coming. Zechariah didn't believe it. <laughs> Luke tells us that God struck him dumb because he didn't believe it until what Gabriel said came true and then he got his voice back. Elizabeth was astonished by the news that she was to bear a child and said, the Lord has taken away my disgrace among the people. So this is a family that must have been the talk of the town, lots of gossip about them. And during the pregnancy, Elizabeth's cousin, Mary, pays a visit, having been told by an angel that she was going to give birth to God's son. The ladies meet, and Elizabeth's child leaps in the womb. Remember the message about before he was even born, full of the Holy Spirit? Like the prophet Jeremiah, John is known and called in the womb. A lovely message about uh, God's anointing upon him. And clearly, to others, all this must have seemed very odd. I'm sure they wondered why Zechariah was struck dumb for a start. Why Elizabeth declared that her child would be called John. He wasn't even given the family name. Well, why was that? I'm sure that got the tongues wagging. 
But John writes on a tablet of stone because the angel had told him that the name is to be John, and he gets his voice back. I love this thing about getting the voice back, the word coming. John means God have mercy, and that was true for Elizabeth and Zechariah. But how appropriate for John's future ministry, his name, God have mercy. And all this was an unexpected, rather odd story. And the Bible tells us that people were gossiping all over the place. Luke 1, 64, throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about those things. And people are asking, what then is this child going to be? There was an expectation about this unexpected thing. Well, John turned out to be a prophet, a person of privilege, yet who dressed like a hippie. He may have joined a reformed Jewish group called the Essenes uh, that we know of Qumran. We don't know for sure, but Josephus suggested that that might be the case. John became the voice, bringing the word of God, fulfilling Isaiah 40 verse 3, one preparing the way for God's coming to make his path straight. And despite this prophecy, he was a rather unexpected and odd rabbi. Yet many heard about him. And they went out into the desert to hear his wisdom. They responded to his preaching. We don't have a lot about his preaching, but we knew he called them to repentance. And they were baptized and they confessed their sins. John was clearly a humble, obedient man of conviction all the time pointing beyond himself, eventually saying things like, uh, Jesus must grow bigger and I must grow smaller, and he wasn't worthy to tie the straps of Jesus' sandals, or as Matthew says, to carry Jesus' sandals. So John was an unexpected prophet who had a great impact. But he also made people feel uncomfortable the wilderness is a very uncomfortable place uh, to live. I'm sure uh, John's attire and his eating habits as well might have been a little bit off-putting. Like many prophets, he was a real character. Despite his class, he identified with the poor, just like the one he was going to come and point towards. He'd given up a lot to bring God's word to people, totally committed to his preaching and God's message. And he summoned his hearers to prepare for the Lord, the coming of God's reign. And his preaching must have made people feel uncomfortable too, because he was calling them to change, calling them to repentance, to return to the Lord, to bear fruit. Fruit is mentioned in Isaiah. It's mentioned there also in our Matthew reading. It was a call to a change of mindset, a God-centered life. And I found it very interesting, and I'll share this with you as it's Bible Sunday. Raymond F. Collins, uh, the scholar, helpfully points out that the gospel writers captured John's uh, challenge in a different way. They portray John differently. Mark 
portrays him as a preacher of the end times, uncomfortably reminding the people that God would come to his people and they must repent and be ready for the coming of God. Matthew's gospel is a stark call to the religious leaders, especially the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The message was, you need to get your act together. Having Abraham as your father isn't enough. You have to bear fruit. They were only good for the fire if they weren't bearing fruit. And that would have been really uncomfortable for these pious people to hear that they were only good for the fire. And Matthew presents John as the new Elijah. And he's in his appearance, but also in his prophetic role. Luke presents John in another way, as an ethical reformer. So in Luke 3, the people were asking when they heard John, what, what should we do then? And John the Baptist applies his message to them. A little bit more about his preaching to the crowd. He says, anyone who has two shirts should share with one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. So part of repentance was that they were to care for the poor. Luke also says that he addressed the tax collectors. Don't collect more than you're required to. So the ethical challenge was repentance meant that they must act justly and they must be honest. And to the soldiers, don't exhort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. In other words, don't exploit people and be satisfied with what you have. That's part of repentance. And for those people, that call wasn't easy to hear. John the Evangelist paints John another way, as a witness. He doesn't even mention the term Baptist, actually. He's, his focus is very much on pointing beyond, towards Jesus, who was going to take central stage. Uh, John was the forerunner, if you like, to Jesus. And for John, everything points to the main event, that people may believe in Jesus. So you see how in the Bible we have different portraits of John. And even in non-biblical writing, Josephus, the historian, presents John as a rather dangerous reformer, one who could have caused an uprising against the Romans. No wonder John was imprisoned and eventually lost his head. He made Herod and his court feel uncomfortable. So John was an uncomfortable prophet. He was calling people to change. The role of the prophet was to put aside people's egos and to be sold out on the word of God. Uh, ego, uh, E-G-O, edging God out. <laughs> now, the prophets put God in the center of things. The Messiah was to be the center of things, which means displacing other things. So John was calling the people to repent and be baptized with water. And of course, we know all about baptism. It's about cleansing and washing. And there was the hint that the one who was to come would baptize with water, but also with the Spirit and fire. So here we have 
an unexpected prophet who made people feel uncomfortable. And in our Old Testament lesson, Isaiah, another prophet, foresaw the the day when a descendant of David would arrive. That's what John was pointing towards. Coming with the Spirit of the Lord resting upon him. Someone who would establish God's justice and peace in Jerusalem. And we believe that this is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. And earlier in Isaiah, God was condemning his people, judging his people, because they were corrupt in their courts. But he was giving them hope. Now he was saying that God's new kingdom would come. The cries of the poor and the needy would be heard, and there would be justice when God comes to his people. And Isaiah paints that lovely picture of uh, God's future peace with the uh, predators living with their prey. And of course, Jesus was to be the prince of peace, the one who could make this possible. But people had to change if this was to happen. And that's why John was bringing this message that people needed to repent. The kingdom of heaven was near, but they needed to turn towards God. So what does this all mean for us? I wonder whether we are open in these days to the unexpected. Whether our views become polarized and unshifting. Do we predetermine how God will speak to us and through whom? I also wonder whether we're more resistant than we think to being made uncomfortable. I wonder what God's radical challenge is to us and our society as we approach an election, for example. What should we be looking for in society if God's kingdom is coming on earth as it is in heaven? And would those things make us feel uncomfortable? Do they demand change from us, not just our leaders? In Matthew's gospel, John the Baptist is like Isaiah. He doesn't tolerate bad religious leaders. He calls them to turn around and repent. But perhaps the call is to all religious leaders today, lay and ordained, Are we turning to the Lord? But it can also be extended to all leadership. Do we pray that our leaders will repent and seek justice, truth, peace, the relief of poverty for our society? God's kingdom isn't very far from us, but we need to turn towards it. And for me, the question that is begging as I read through this is, what are we here on this earth for? What do we want to do with the rest of our lives? What is it that really matters? What are we prepared to give the whole of our lives for? And am I open to the unexpected and the uncomfortable? Another question, because it was there in both of our readings, is are we bearing fruit? Is God's eternal rule governing our behavior? 
In other words, if Jesus came tomorrow, would you be happy with the way you are living? Or do we trust the Lord and begin to change now? Are we listening for the uncomfortable whisper of the Spirit and be taken to the place that is where God wants his people to be? That might be a wilderness experience for us, whatever that may be. But the call is to turn towards God's love and his purposes for us and for our society. Seeking after truth, discerning the difference between good leaders and bad leaders. It means turning away from bad religion and turning towards what is authentic Christianity. Matthew 7 said, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit. A bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. When you come to vote, you have to make your own judgment on that. But are you looking for the fruit of the kingdom when you vote? The life of Brennan Manning wasn't perfect. A self-confessed vagabond. But unexpectedly, he still bore good fruit. And God used him to speak to many people's lives, including my own, surprisingly. And God often uses the people that we least expect in the work of his kingdom. It's quite interesting in Matthew's gospel that many of the people that Jesus healed and restored had been damaged, they were excluded in the name of religion, and yet Jesus showed them compassion. He called them then to leave their comfort zones and turn towards God's love and forgiveness. And he gave them a ministry that led them to great blessing. What about you and me? Do we judge people by our own standards and therefore close our ears? Or are we open to God's grace and mercy through surprising people? For it may be that God's got something very powerful he wants to say to us through his word, through people he has called. And I wonder if we're ready this Christmas to hear his whisper in our hearts, ready for him to come again to be our judge. His kingdom is near. John said that. Jesus said that. Are we ready to receive him and turn towards him. Amen. Sing we the King who is coming to reign. Glory to Jesus, the Lamb that was slain. We stand to sing.